the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is Monday, February 8, 2021. As we do our second hour every Monday, we check in with Brandon Weikert. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report and has a keen eye on things uh, international as well as domestic. Uh, com is his website. He's also the author of one of the most important books of uh, the past year, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. I actually wanted to ask him a little bit about that. I want to do some China with him, too. Brandon, how are you? Happy Monday. I'm okay, and uh, happy Monday to you. Thanks for having me, as always. Hard to believe it's another year around the sun. I know, it. another year around the sun. You live in Florida. Do I owe you congratulations on your Super Bowl? Victory? Yes, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, we live on the west coast of Florida too, so we had uh, our gated community had fireworks going off yesterday, and uh, it was very fun. It was a very good time to be a Floridian. Um, is it a good time to be an American? Uh, when you look at something Donald, excuse me, Joe Biden said um, just yesterday, uh, we're not going to take the Trump approach with China. We will view them as just an, a competitor. Is that a shift? Yeah. Is that worrisome? Um, I So what I have gathered, and as you know, I, I do have a little bit of connectivity with the new administration mm-hmm. for whatever reason. The, their Pentagon has been bringing me up to brief them on issues related to space and emerging tech. And I talked to these generals and I talked to the, the leaders uh, and some of the political appointees even. Um, uh, there does seem to be a real debate going on right now within the administration. Um, and it sounds like there's a real divide. And we talked about this a little bit last week. It sounds like there's a real divide between uh, his advisors, that you've got half of the people who work for him who are hawkish, certainly much more amenable to the way you or I would view China, I think the realistic way, uh, which is that they're a threat. And then the other half are sort of these idealists. And, uh, you know, they're really trying to drive policy hard into being a more cooperative as opposed to competitive framework. And we don't know how that battle's going to end. I think part of the problem is uh, that the president himself, I'm not sure, is attenuated to uh, the particulars of, of, of the threat that we're facing. On the campaign trail, he had made several comments about China, uh, which indicated that at the very least he was going to handle them really no differently than the last five or six American presidents, with the exception of Trump, had handled them. And that's, of course, a very bad way to handle them. At worst, he has a history of supporting China. Uh, he supported their move into the World Trade Organization in December of 2001. He has made he has a history of business deals and very close relations with various Chinese entities. Very sympathetic to China. So I don't know how he's going to come down on this. I think what that statement was was a reflection of sort of this ambiguity and uncertainty from within the Biden administration, which in and of itself is very dangerous and it is 
frightening. Obviously, I'm hoping that the sort of Kurt Campbell and, and sort of these more hawkish figures, Eli Ratner, uh, even they, though, are not hawkish in the sense that Mike Pompeo and Peter Navarro were from the Trump administration. But my hope is that the people who are more hawkish in the Biden administration can win this policy debate. But I don't know if they can, because, of course, we saw in the Obama administration, we saw a similar debate over the Arab Spring, and we saw that the idealists won that fight, mm -hmm. and the Middle East is a smoldering mess because they won that fight. Mm -hmm. So my concern is the same thing will play out here. Uh, Brandon, the former director of national uh, intelligence in the Trump administration said earlier today that um, that the Biden administration is obsessed with Russia and they are, in his opinion, he thinks Russia is a piker compared to China. And I wonder what yeah. you would say to that. Well, remember, I said that exact phrase to you last week after I had come back from Washington, D.C. My original briefing packet was supposed to be on me briefing the, the Pentagon on China. And the last three times I've done these briefings, at the last minute, they've asked for inputs on Russia as opposed to China. And the, the correlation here is that the new administration had taken over. And so there is an obsession with Russia. Um, it's the low-hanging fruit. That's why they're going after it. And that's, you know, I had a long conversation with some, some people at Heritage Foundation. James Carafano was one of them. And he indicated his opinion was that it is the low-hanging fruit. That's the only reason they're doing this, because let's face it, it's easier to take on Russia. They're not as integrated into the world economy. They've always been sort of this pariah. Uh, China is very essential to the working of the global economic order. And when you remove or when you decouple from China, it creates a lot of shockwaves that are going to harm a lot of elite interests both in China, but also more importantly in the United States and the wider West. And so there's a there's sort of this this belief that hey, let's go after Russia. They're easier to take on. Of course, I don't even know what they're thinking because Russia has such a large nuclear weapons capability. Well, I was just going to ask, what, what is the brief against Russia right now? Okay, I get the human rights thing, uh, obviously, but I, again, I don't think it's worse than China's human rights record, which I would categorize well, as genocide. Right. So aside from human rights, which I, I've always cared about, so I don't mean to be dismissive of it. I'm just dismissive of it in comparison to China's. Uh, aside from that, and aside from their uh, from the aggression that that you know we've been part and parcel of trying to trying to thwart for you know over a decade now in in their neighboring uh, in, in neighboring territory that they claim like Ukraine. Um, aside from those two things, what is the Russia beef here? What is the brief? I should say. Well, I I have it's in my interactions with people on the other side who are involved with this administration and who are affiliated with the DNC, they, there is a, a very large number of them who genuinely think that the Russians hacked the 2016 election. They have really convinced themselves that Donald Trump did not actually win that election fair and square and that it was stolen from them and that they have to get back at Putin so that he doesn't ever try it again and so that they can avenge their honor, for lack of a better word, and also, they really dislike the Putinist regime much more so than the Chinese regime. Um, and I think that goes to some of the human rights against, you know, violations against homosexuals in Russia. It is very bad to be gay in Russia. Uh, I think it, it, it really offends the, the American left. 
Um, you know, it offends me too. I'm, you know, it just, it's just not something that I want to make the centerpiece of right. my sure. foreign policy. Right. But um, Sla- you know, slavery makes China, me a little more queasy, frankly. Right. Agreed. Agreed. And and I think that when it comes to China, and this is what Carafano and I were talking about, and Carafano was kind of getting to this, is that it just seems like China's too hard. China's too hard to go after right now. And so it's easier to go after Russia. It's easier to make them sort of the great villain uh, when really they're a shadow, thankfully, of their former selves. Um, But it's easier to go after them because going after China is going to require a full, like, government and full society approach. And our society and government are so divided and our government is so inept right now and it's so rudderless. Uh, that it's just a lot easier to say, hey, the Russians are the bad guys. They've got a GDP around the same uh, as GDP as Italy. You know, they've always been a pariah. They don't have a huge population anymore. They've got a declining population. It's just easier to make them the villains. It really is. And that's all it comes down to. And I think it's really short-sighted. I don't think they're our friends. But I don't think that, that we should be dedicating the kind of energy we are to pursuing Russia then we should be, you know, dedicating that rather to China. That, that's a great geopolitical outlook on it, and I, and, I, and I share your outlook on it, too. If we were crass political operatives, one of the questions I would raise is, what's the win here uh, for us as right. a country? I mean, okay, maybe we can show things that didn't happen, always difficult. But at least the win in um, combating or competing with China is perhaps – more workers, more jobs, uh, more manufacturing, uh, perhaps a, a, a less imbalanced trade balance, um, and, and you know, a supply chain. We don't get any of that. Yes. We don't get any of that competing with Russia. No, no. Um, the, again, with Russia, it's, it's very limited what the issues are. It can either be resolved with just kind of holding our ground or with creating uh, areas of, of joint opportunity via diplomacy. So, for instance, the Russian threat to us, which it is, there is a Russian threat, but it, the, the Russian threat is very direct. What they want is very clear. They want buffer zones, particularly on their western border, so that's the European side. They want buffer zones with the Middle East because they have a problem with a lot of Muslim immigrants coming into Russia. Hold, hold it there on that thought, Brandon. Yeah. I want to come back to that point, too, as well. Yeah. Yes, Russia has had that problem for some. We're talking to Brandon Weikert. He is the publisher of the Weikert Report. Great stuff there. Wait till you see what he – you didn't know about what he was doing, what Biden was doing to Elon Musk. We'll tell you about that, too, when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Brandon Weikert. 602 If you have geopolitical questions, Brandon's your man. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Brandon Weikert with us, as we do every Monday, giving us a tour of the geopolitical landscape and a little domestic stuff as well. He is the uh, publisher of the Weikert Report, one of the great young minds of, uh, of our age, and the publisher of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Um, so there's this man, Brandon, um, named Elon Musk, who, as best as I can tell has a couple interests innovation discovery giving people jobs 
expanding yeah. the economy. So the Biden administration is going after him, right? Why would why why <laughs> why would you want to let that thrive? <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. So basically, um, I wrote a piece for the Washington Times uh, about a week and a half ago after the FAA randomly canceled or postponed. Uh, the launch of one of his Starship heavy lift rocket prototypes. Um, my article assessed why they would have done that, and I looked at the fact that the FAA at first didn't give any reason, uh, and then they came back and said, well, it's because uh, SpaceX didn't file their paperwork properly with us. And, of course, that was, that was in the words of Joe Biden, that was a bunch of malarkey. Mm. Um, the, the, SpaceX has been doing these these. these launch tests for years they previously under the trump administration i know because i i since 2018 i have briefed the faa multiple times uh, and this is about space issues and every time the senior faa people the, you know the gs 14s 15s that i i brief they all say the same thing to me that they don't want to regulate space because they don't really they don't have the time and they they were saying to me back in 2019 like they think that somebody should create a separate regulatory body because they don't think the FAA should have been handling these these regulations of Musk and other private space companies' launches because they can't do it. They don't understand it, and they don't do it very well. And so uh, basically my article was trying to figure out what the real reason was. And so I contextualized it, and what I, what I determined was we know – that the Biden administration is not very comfortable with the previous Trump administration's space policy. They think it's too nationalistic. They think that it's too heavy on, on American space power. They want to hem in American uh, 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 you know, individual space capabilities to make it more interoperable with more countries. They want to make it more alliance-based, and they don't want to do a lot because, let's face it, just like we were talking about in the last segment, a lot of the people in the Biden team are utopians. They don't want to go to war. They don't want to risk any kind of conflict. And so they want to restrain sort of the development of space, the kind of development you see in all the other strategic domains, land, sea, air, cyberspace. And so what I said was there's sort of this political opposition. There's also the fact that Musk uh, was a big supporter of the GameStop you know, this thing that were basically Melvin Capital and some of these hedge funds tried to short the stock of GameStop, and a bunch of Redditors, you know, came together anonymously and decided to prevent that from happening and inflated the stock price. Elon Musk was heavily involved with that. He, got, he made a lot of very powerful people on Wall Street look very bad. A lot of those people are well-connected with the Biden administration. So you already had the Biden administration's sort of antipathy to what Musk has been trying to do by giving America its space dominance back. Then you add in sort of the fact that Musk offended the, uh, the oligarchs who run America. And so I think what they did was the FAA, representing the Biden administration, waited for that rocket to be fueled up, ready to launch. And an hour before it was supposed to launch, they said, nope, shut it down. Cost Musk millions of dollars. 
added a lot of uncertainty into his operations. Ultimately, the, the launch went through a few about a week later, but the damage had already been done. And by the way, as soon as that launch was allowed to go forward, the National Highway Transportation Safety Agency or Administration, NHTSA, then ordered Tesla, another Musk company, to recall 135,000 yep. vehicles. Yep. And then on top of that, the Daily Wire reported the day after that that uh, uh, the DOJ opened a bizarre discrimination investigation into Tesla and SpaceX hiring practices uh, over the fact that Tesla and SpaceX, notably SpaceX, because it gets classified contracts from the DOD, they prefer to hire American workers as opposed to foreign workers. And DOJ saying that's discriminatory, and so they're going after Musk. And then on top of that, after I got slammed by this group for NASA, these NASA reps who are retired on Twitter, I then found out that the interim head of NASA is quoted in a text log of basically just ripping Elon Musk's Starship uh, prototype as being not what NASA needs or wants. And so all of that contextualizes what the launch cancellation at the end of January was about. I think the Biden administration is trying to bring Elon Musk to heel. I think they're trying to force him to, play, you know, march to their fight. And it looks like he's starting to. I mean, he, you know, he issued some bizarre statement where he was apologizing for, you know, going too far with certain things. And then, uh, you know, he's now playing nice with the FAA after he was bashing them. And now he's, you know, winning this, this contract for NASA to develop a galactic map. Uh, but the thing is, that's not going to help us achieve the, the, the need for American space dominance, putting American forces and astronauts in high orbit, on the moon, and on Mars before the Chinese can. Uh, and so you, I, I think you're seeing some kind of backseam, you know, behind-the-scenes conflict playing out, uh, and we're only getting snippets of it uh, over, over Elon Musk and his very real independence from the Biden administration. I agree with that. I agree with that. And it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, the ma the major media likes to highlight certain kinds of entrepreneurs and businessmen, and they become the flavor of, um, oh, I don't know, a half a decade for a while, or even right. sometimes a decade. You could think of Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Jeff right. Be Bezos, uh, Richard Branson. Gosh, he was on the cover yep. of every magazine at one point. Yep. Musk, who was, I think, surpassed – look, they all did impressive things, so I can't say if he surpassed one or the other. But he's certainly in that club of uh, innovation and changing the world and our lives, um, and he certainly made the money, right? Um but he doesn't. But he doesn't have what they have, and that's the right politics. And so that's they right. go well, after remember, him, don't you think? Remember, yeah. Well, remember, initially everybody assumed because Musk was dabbling in green energy, right. he was receiving government right. subsidies, right. he must be a liberal, right? But then it came out. It came out. He's in this huge fight with California, right? Right now, because he wanted to reopen his factory. Yep. He, he didn't. He has been a, a COVID skeptic mm -hmm. from the beginning. Yep. Uh, he actually moved to Texas. Yep. So there he's he's been and he received the lion's share of contra launch contracts for the Trump administration. Yep. He's and everything so he's the high culture now, hates. You bet. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and it's interesting, too. I remember, uh, you know, covid skepticism. You know, he was um, when Amazon Bezos, company banned uh, banned an author 
for writing a book uh, from the perspective of skepticism. Um, he that author that author reached out to 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 uh, to um, Elon Musk for help, and Elon Musk right. impressed upon Bay. I mean, you know, it's interesting. He's he's. It is. It's kind of the go-to guy for libertarianism. Um, Brandon, let me right. um, put you on hold, and we'll come right back, because I want to do a little bit on Iran okay. as well, okay? Yeah. Be right back with more from Brandon Weikert. He'll fill you in on what Biden meant about Iran yesterday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower is his book. His uh, website is theweikertreport.com, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Brandon, I want to talk to you about Iran, too. But before I do, you and I are uh, expatriates of Washington, D.C. We both used to live there. And um, Antifa is evidently rioting throughout Washington, D.C. It's hard to get much news on it. Interestingly enough, there's this weird, odd thing going on where there's concertina wire and 5,000 National Guard troops protecting the Capitol. Um, but Antifa is storming through, evidently, a uh, place I used to live, DuPont Circle. Um, they say they want to burn the place down over, um, over Black Lives Matter. And I have no idea what the hell it is they want. Do you? Brandon, do we still have you? Did we lose Brandon? Yes, I'm here. Oh, I'm there we here. go. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Sorry about that. No, my, uh, they're anarchists. That's, that's what. That's what they are. They're they're anarchists. They just want to they just want to watch the world burn. Uh, if it wasn't George Floyd's unfortunate death, you know, it would be something else that would trigger them. And and it's very it's very interesting. The two extremes of of the two sides, um, they have nothing constructive. You know, they nothing. Uh, you know, whether it's these QAnon crazies or it's the, you know, the, the Antifa types, um, I really think we should just ra- gather them all up, put them on an island and say, you, you guys have at it. You have fun uh, because the rest of us are going to try to live our lives now because there's there's literally no objective reason for the people who are burning Washington, D.C. down. There's no reason for them to do this. Uh, there's no reason. There's just, the, the amount of political mania that we have been subjected to over the last year with these riots and these sieges and whatever is just it, it is so ridiculous, especially when, you know, I was I'm, a, I'm on this clubhouse app. And earlier today, uh, a friend of ours from who is a, a former Publius fellow in the military now, he's hosting a chat room. And he had hundreds of people from mainland China on, including I well, including one of the big uh, Chinese tech tycoons, talking about how China's government is now cracking down on anyone who uses Clubhouse because it can't be regulated and right. it's freedom of right. speech. Right, right, right. And the people rioting and burning our cities from both political spectrum sides of the spectrum here are so spoiled and they are so unbelievably decadent that they don't understand how good everyone in this country has it. I talked to someone today who's literally telling me that because they're using this app to talk to Americans, they might actually be arrested and disappeared tonight. So, like, that's, that's, the, that's, that's the rest of the world. And so for all these people burning the cities down or laying siege to, to government buildings, you know, get a life. 
because like the, the you know the rest of the world is bleak compared to what we have here, and that's my soapbox. I think it's a good one. I uh, it it reminds me of some. Do you know John Hinderocker? John Hinderocker was yeah. I, yeah. I, I had him on last week. And I was uh, talking, and he had much the same point. He said, "When you think uh, related on that, he said, you know, when you when you look around the world, what people are willing to do to risk their tr- literally risk their lives for a, a, a glance of the freedoms that 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 we h- hitherto have had." You know, he said, "The idea of what we see, what going on now in this country, is um, beyond disrepute." And uh, and yeah. and I just I, I just you know I mean there are good things to protest. Um, obviously, you and I are not shy yeah. about that. That's the business we're in too, in certain respects, different ways maybe. But there are good things to protest. But the idea that D.C. with today, the black mayor and city council and a majority right. minority community and our Biden administration right. no less is the enemy of the right. Black Lives Matter movement, right. such in, that in it needs Democrat, to be burnt down, is beyond belief. Right. In a Democrat-controlled Congress. Right, right. I mean, let's face it. We saw this Time Magazine article where basically they admitted that they were manipulating, uh, uh, you know, the the last election, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to change, shape the perception, which I don't know if that's a violation of the law or not. Certainly a gray area. But but they were manipulating and and shaping a public perception to ensure Trump lost or to increase his odds of losing. So, I mean, you know, these, the, the, the majority of the powerful people seem to be on the side of the people supposedly burning the city down right, right now. Right, so right. It's just bizarre. Yeah, Jack Dorsey giving $10 billion bucks to communists in right. uh, Boston University. Right. All right, that's a good bookmark for Ron, because there's a lot about this, what Biden is doing, the conversations about whether sanctions will be removed or not, the de, um, de-designation of the Houthis as a terrorist organization. What's going on with the U.S. and Iran? We'll talk to Brandon Weikert when we come back. It's actually, I think, a big deal. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Portions of this show are brought to you by Balance of Nature. One daily dose brings with it 31 different fruits and veggies and 10 Servings of those 31 different fruits and veggies. I think it's the most effective whole food supplement on the market. All natural vined ripened fruits and veggies picked at the peak of ripeness reduced using their unique cold press process into vegetarian capsules. Fantastic. You take it once a day and you are good to go with powerful, potent stuff that improves your health, boosts your immunity, gives you a lot of energy all naturally. And they have a great deal. Free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. I take it every day. Give them a call at 800-246-8751 or visit them online at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. We're talking to Brandon Weikert. Brandon, um, moving pretty quickly on a uh, on a, uh, the Biden administration is from my, from my lights, from my perspective, on a um, – on a regime that um, is cloaked with uh, cloaked with darkness, and that is uh, Iran. Whether we're, you know, de-designating the Houthis as uh, terrorists, or whether we are moving fast to uh, try and get back to a negotiating table with or without sanctions, what's right. your sense of what's going on, and what's your research showing too? Well, it's a total disaster. Um, 
Uh, on the one hand, for me personally, professionally, um, as you know, my next book is on the Middle East. Yeah. So it's giving me giving me a lot of material to work with as I come to the end of writing this book. Uh, but uh, unfortunately for this country, it, it's a total disaster. The as we discussed last week, the Biden administration, like the Obama administration, has a very academic, two-dimensional view of Iran and the geopolitical situation in the Middle East. They view uh, those countries in the Middle East, the greater Middle East, they view them as sort of widgets. They're interchangeable. Uh, get you know, Set aside the pesky points of religion and history and culture and fixate on uh, you know, uh, the material needs. Remember Marie Hart when she was at State Department? Mm-hmm. She wanted jobs for jihadis. That was her big thing. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of, uh, in my view, left-wing thinking, uh, whether it be in Obama's administration or now the Biden administration, especially when it comes to Iran. They think, well, you know, Iran has been kept as a pariah of the region. They've been contained and kind of isolated away. And that is the reason for their antipathy to their neighbors, the United States, etc. So if we help to work to integrate them or reintegrate them into the larger area, uh, it would also uh, uh, force the, the Sunni Arab states to moderate, uh, and it would force the Israelis to moderate as well. And in so doing, it might actually force, for instance, the Sunnis to to uh, potentially uh, weaponize, nuclearize their, their arsenal, or at best, an, a nuclear Iran would simply bring balance to uh, the nuclear arsenal of Israel, and then Pakistan, of course, has a nuclear arsenal. And so ultimately, it'll create a, a balance, and, and the balance will be stabilizing. Of course, what they don't realize is what they're talking about is a multipolar system, and I'm going to get into real IR theory here, but what we find is that multipolar systems are actually, they, t- they, they tend not to be that stable, especially if there's only three powers or three players. And let's face it, you've got Israel, you've got the Sunni Arab states, and Iran as the primary players. That's a tripolar system, and tripolar systems are in, in, inherently unstable. And so you're going to, the, the Biden administration thinks that by letting Iran get worked back into the system and by letting Iran get the legal pathway to a nuclear weapons arsenal, that will stabilize and bring balance, and it will force, for instance, the Sunni Arabs to stop funding uh, Islamist terror groups and instead become closer to the United States. It won't. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is a total breakdown, and what's going to happen is the Third World War starting in that region. And that is basically, I'm giving them a large chunk of my next book away, but that's basically what I'm writing about right now. Brandon, we have um, we have this weird thing about memory and foreign policy, because it seems to me you were talking about the Biden administration. You're thinking of the Joe, uh, excuse me, the uh, Obama administration and the Biden administration wanted to take us back to the good old days of the Biden administration and the foreign policy of the Middle East there. Um, Before anyone probably outside of Manhattan even heard of Donald Trump. Iran was attacking the United States and attacking U.S. interests. This is not because of Donald Trump that they blew up Marines in Beirut or 
uh, oh, no. U.S. soldiers in um, in Kobar. Uh, this was right. it, Hezbollah did not come about because of antagonism towards Donald Trump. I, no. I, I simply fail to understand. You talk about moderating the Arab states in Israel. I know what you mean when you say that, but what moderating is there to do? They're the m- most moderate right. of the group. Right. Well, furthermore, of that tripolar outline that you gave us, anyway. Right. Well, furthermore, it's not going to moderate anything. It's going to it's going to compel right. uh, those other actors to expedite. I mean, Israel's already basically said, "Look, if we think Iran's going to get the bomb, we're just going to attack and see how the pieces fall." Right. That, to me, is more dangerous than what we're doing now, which is containing Iran and keeping everybody at bay. Uh, the same thing with the Sunnis, and we talked about this last week. We know since '09, Saudi Arabia has had 19 rudimentary nuclear weapons on back order from Pakistan. And the only thing stopping them were guarantees the Obama administration made that, hey, don't worry, we'll watch your back. And, of course, a few years later, Arab Spring happened, and then the Syrian civil war happened, and then the Iran deal happened that agitated the heck out of MDS, who was the defense minister at the time, which prompted him to encourage the Saudi attack in Yemen. And Yemen destabilized because of the Obama administration's haphazard policy uh, in Yemen in 2009. Remember, Obama was talking about Yemen being this great counterterrorism success story. Of course, it wasn't. It wasn't. And so all of this leads into, you know, the Iranian... As it exists, the Islamist regime in Iran, they are where they are because Jimmy Carter and this same kind of utopian academic thinking of Iran and the Middle East dominated the Jimmy Carter administration. I talk about this in my book, and I have people who used to work for the Shah who went on record with me for, and it will be in this. It will will it you give us a preview? Uh, in like, can you give us like a minute and a half preview in the next segment? Yeah. You know, it's our last small segment. Absolutely. Would you do that for us? Yeah, I'd love that. Yeah. Oh, great, Brandon. I'd love to hear it. We will be right back yeah. with a little preview of uh, why Jimmy and how Jimmy Carter helped cause the problem that we have to date with Iran. And we'll get it from Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. The history of misreading the um, malocracy in Iran is a long one, and it goes back uh, many, many years, uh, 1978, 1979. Big op-ed in the New York Times by one of the great foreign policy thinkers of our age from Princeton, one Professor Richard Falk wrote, The depiction of the Ayatollah Khomeini as fanatical reactionary and the bearer of crude prejudices seems certainly and happily false. What is also encouraging is that his entourage of close advisors is composed of moderate, progressive individuals, widely respected in Iran, that share a notable record of concern for human rights. Boy, Brandon, that's what the smart people at Princeton were saying in 1979. What were they saying at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Same thing, huh? Yeah, so so Jimmy Carter really believed that because he was a Baptist, and because he was a devout Christian, that basically Khomeini being this religious, austere religious scholar, to use the Washington Post formulation today for Islamist leaders, uh, because the Khomeini was this, uh, you know, very traditional Islamic individual, uh, who, although he was this traditional Islamic individual, he seemed to have a lot of interaction and positive thinking toward the West, 
of course, which was all a lie and a manipulation from the Khomeini's people. But Carter believed he could work with Khomeini better than he could with the Shah. And he also believed Khomeini represented the majority of the Iranian people's opinion. And he thought that, well, this guy will be Islamism. And we saw this thinking play out. Carter was funding uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So uh, Carter believed, oh, you know what? The Islamists actually might be a better shield against Soviet communism uh, than uh, the current uh, monarchy in Iran, which is very unpopular outside of the city of Tehran. And so he was receiving, Carter, these letters from, uh, these love letters from Khomeini in Paris, basically promising that I'll be this old, nice guy that just wants to have decency returned and human rights. They played up the human rights aspect because, of course, Carter was a big proponent of making human rights a plank of his foreign policy. And so basically Carter got played, and the whole Washington establishment got played, and they looked the other way while Khomeini got in. There was a U.S. general that was sent to basically get the Shah's military leaders who wanted to do a crackdown on the protests in the street and wanted to prevent Khomeini from returning to Tehran from uh, Paris. Basically, this American general came down and said, hey, guys, just let the Shah go. Hang on. Don't worry. You can work with the Islamists. They've, we've got their back. They're going to you know, protect our interests. And by extension, if you play nice with them when they get here, they'll protect you. Of course, what happened was almost as soon as Khomeini you know, reached Iran, it became a bloodbath. Yeah. He started massacring everyone. Most of those generals were, were murdered within days. Uh, and we basically, Carter hung the Shah and our friends out to die. Uh, and that's the exact same thing that's going to happen again in the Middle East under Biden. Brandon Weikert, bless you, sir. Until next week.